right, we're in Genesis 29. Uh, as you know from last time we met, uh, in this chapter, Jacob has set his heart on marrying Rachel, the younger daughter of Laban. Uh, she also has an older sister named Leah. On the night of the wedding, Jacob, or rather Laban, uh, pulls a switch and he substitutes uh, Le uh, Leah for uh, Rachel under the cover of darkness. And, uh, and so Jacob's completely bamboozled by this whole setup. He doesn't know he, who he married until the next morning. And uh, surprise, it was Leah, not Rachel. Needless to say, he's livid. And so in Genesis 29, he confronts Laban about the whole situation. Well, they strike a deal, and Laban says, Look, uh, you can marry my other daughter, my younger daughter, Rachel, if you'll work for me another seven years. And so he does, and now he's married to both sisters. And what does that make him? Makes him a bigamist at this point. Now, if you thought that section was wild and woolly, wait until tonight's section. We're about to enter a, a part of the Bible that has been called a biblical soap opera. really is. If you read through that section, that's what you think. One husband married to two sisters uh, who have two handmaids, and all four women bear that one husband's children. You know, uh, along with that, there's a developing rivalry between the two wives, Leah and uh, Rachel. This scenario could play out on a daytime TV drama. You know, as the world turns, days of our lives or something like that, that's what it sounds like. It's a dysfunctional family. Just like, does that remind you of anybody? Isaac and Rebecca had a dysfunctional family. And guess what? Jacob now also has one. And uh, to be honest with you, as we read through this section, uh, I don't, and this, is, this goes from chapter 29, uh, verse 31 through chapter 30, verse 24, I don't see how most of this can please the Lord at all. In fact, I don't believe it meets with his, uh, his approval. Most of it doesn't. Now, it's not all bad. Uh, there are statements and actions of faith that we will see in this chapter, but there are also, also statements and actions of a lack of faith in God in this section. So there are two things you need to remember as we're looking through this section. That is, first of all, the big picture of God's plan. That's number one. And secondly, the zoom in of the individual lives and struggles of the people involved. The big picture has to do with the Abrahamic covenant. That's got to be kept in mind. God's promised that. The zoom in or the smaller picture has to do with Jacob and Rachel and Leah and all their squabbles and all their self-centeredness and all their, the stuff that happens in their individual lives in this section. The central idea of the section is liable to get lost, is liable to get buried under all the madness that's taking place. And it really is an insane section. It shows that even through human foolishness, God is faithful to fulfill his promise of offspring to Jacob. And uh, go with me to chapter 28 again to look at this, uh, this promise. Chapter 28, verses 13 and 14. You remember the section we call Jacob's ladder? He has this dream and a ladder goes to heaven and uh, God gives him this promise in chapter 28, verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord, this is to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This same promise was made to Abraham. It was also made to Isaac. Now it's made to Jacob. And you're going to see that promise now really take effect. Uh, Isaac and Abraham, not as many children. Now you're going to see this take effect in a big way. In fact, Jacob will have 11 of the 12 sons in this section. 
of who are going to be named after the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, but the way it happens is pretty crazy. And I, as I thought about this, I'll liken it to what happened after World War II. All the soldiers came back home. And what happened? A flood of babies were born, and they call that the baby boomers generation, of which I am proud to be a part, Jimmy Wiggum. And Jimmy Wiggum is a part of that generation as well. That generation goes from 1946 to 1964, the baby boomers, because they, there was a boom of babies that were born during that time. This section is about the baby boomers of one family in Genesis, the family of Jacob. Our outline is going to follow the two wives of Jacob since they're the two main characters. And what we, and by the way, there's a, a page of notes in the back, but what we encounter, first of all, is a woman desperate for love. A woman desperate for love in chapter 29, verses 30 to 35. Stephen just read that. Now, one fact you need to understand about Leah is that she is not the favorite wife of Jacob. Not the favorite wife. Rachel is. That's very clear. Verse 31. Now the Lord, chapter 29, verse 31, the Lord saw that Leah was what? Unloved, the Nazbe says. Uh, the word unloved literally means hated. In fact, the ESV translates it that way. And I'm sure that Jacob resents the fact that Laban tricked him into marrying Leah. And as a result, I'm sure he resents Leah as well. Although, keep in mind, Rachel played her role too. She kept her mouth shut and didn't say anything. And when she was supposed to be married that night to him, she doesn't even mention it at all. And, and so she played her role as well. But... The hatred in, the, in, the, in this context in verse 31 is qualified uh, by the statement in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Uh, Jacob went in to Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. He loved her more than Leah. So really, in this passage, this word hatred in the ESV, which it literally is, is a matter of preference. Jacob does not despise Leah. He much prefers her sister Rachel. It's a, a, a word of preference. He would, not, he would have preferred not to have married Rachel, Leah at all, but he was tricked into it. And uh, in this context, he's not boiling over with hatred for Leah here. He just prefers Rachel is the idea, a word of preference. In fact, in connection with this idea, we might think of the gospel passages. In fact, I did as I read through this, in, in, uh, where it talks about we should love you know, Christ above all our relatives. Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, you ever read this verse and wonder what's going on here? Why is Christ telling us to hate our parents? If anyone comes to me, Christ says, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that's tough. Does Jesus actually want us to hate our mom and dad and our wives and our children and all these sisters and brothers? The answer is no. It's a love of comparison. Of course we love our family. Uh, if, if Jesus said to love our enemy, why would he then turn around and say, no, hate your family? <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense at all. It's a love of, of comparison and uh, a love of preference. Where to put Christ first is all he's saying. By far, he's to be first in our lives. First and foremost, over our family members, obviously we love our family. Husbands love their wives, right, the scripture says. But we obviously should put Jesus first in our affections. Unfortunately, in Genesis 29 and 30, 30, I don't see the Lord being first in the affections of Jacob, Leah, or Rachel. I just don't see that. Oh, you're going to see the Lord's name mentioned in this section at different times. But what you're going to see also is a spirit of competition. In fact, what we have in this section looks more like a battleground. 
than anything else. A race, maybe, to, to determine who can have the most babies. It's the original baby boomers. Now, it's true that Leah is really hurting emotionally. I get it. She's not married to a loving husband, at least not to her. And she's not, only, she's not the only one to recognize it. Guess who else recognizes this? Look at verse 31. Now, the Lord saw Leah was unloved. How about that? Isn't that interesting? The Lord picked up on this. And uh, in the midst of a bigamous marriage, the Lord takes notice of the fact that this one wife is unloved. Does that mean the Lord supports bigamy or polygamy? Does that mean he supports it? No, it just means, like, like always, as we see throughout the scripture, the Lord is compassionate to the unloved. You notice that? He's always compassionate to the one who's unloved, the one who's mistreated. He always shows his compassion to those people. We saw that in chapter 21, when he showed compassion to the outcast, Hagar. And he always does this throughout the scriptures. So the Lord intervenes. He opens the womb of the unloved woman, and he shuts the womb of the loved woman, the favored woman. Have you noticed that Jacob is taking after his, the pattern set down by his parents and showing favoritism? They showed favoritism to their children. He's showing favoritism to a wife. Of course, this is weird. I know this whole situation is weird. But nevertheless, Jacob is still playing favorites. Now, when it comes to bigamy or polygamy, how does the Bible address this issue? Well, for one thing, it clearly states in Genesis 2 that a man is to leave his father and cleave to his wife, singular. You say, we don't care about grammar. You know, guys take, guys take Hebrew and Greek in seminary, and they get all frustrated, right? The grammar's not all important. That is, actually is important right here. Singular, uh, cleave to his wife, right? And that's the standard in Genesis 2. Then you go to Deuteronomy 17, for example, and it says kings, future kings of Israel, are not to do what? Not to multiply wives, it says. Uh, why kings? Usually those guys are the guiltiest of everybody. They have authority. They have power. They're able to, do, to get away with this, and they marry several wives. You see that throughout the Old Testament. And uh, they do it to establish political ties with other nations. Solomon married the, the woman from Egypt to establish a political tie. You see that? They do it to increase the royal family, and they have all these sons. And uh, typically, the wealthy and powerful are the ones who are able to marry more wives, multiple wives in the Bible, since, guess what? You have to have enough income to support all these wives. You can't just uh, marry a bunch of uh, women and not have money to support them. It doesn't work that way. And so you see this in the Old Testament. Uh, so why, what about kings? Well, it seems to me what's good for the king is good for their subjects as well. That would apply to everybody, I think. Uh, but another way, and by the way, every time you see these kings uh, involved in uh, polygamy, there's always problems. Read carefully the, the text that talk about always problems. Another way, though, and we're going to talk about this right now, in which the way the Bible denounces polygamy or bigamy is by describing the lifestyle, the, the lifestyle of a family who's engaged, who has many wives, multiple mothers. It always, always brought problems in the family. Read through all the passages that talk about it. Always brought rivalries, bitterness, anger, competition. You see that later in the end of Genesis where the brothers are fighting each other from different mothers. So always, always a problem. Now, at this time in Genesis, there's no Mosaic law against it. it doesn't, it's not here. It still doesn't make it right, given the standard already set in Genesis chapter 2. They should know that standard. Um, and, uh, but later on, Leviticus 18.18 18 will say this. 
you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival. See, while she's, uh, while she's alive to uncover her nakedness. So you have a couple of things there. You have a rivalry going on. You have an immoral type situation going on in this verse. So uh, bigamy creates rivalry between the two wives. You see it again in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah and Penina, they're fighting. And you see, uh, you know, that, you see the problems that result from that. Now, I can't answer all the questions regarding polygamy in the Old Testament. But again, I think the standard is clear. Genesis 2, one man for one woman. Let's go to Leah's first son in verse 32. Leah conceived and bore a son. God opens her womb and Rachel's barren. In verse 32, Leah conceives and bears a son. Named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Name Reuben comes from a play on words. These, these, these names are really a play on words is what's happening here. And the, the, the term uh, Reuben comes down to this. It means to see a son. See a son. I, you know, you have, she has a son. See a son. Look, a son. I've had a son born to me. Well, Leah's obviously thrilled to hear this. This is her first child. She's obviously thrilled. But in naming him Reuben, she is also pointing out a quality concerning the Lord. She says, because the Lord has seen my affliction. The Lord has seen my affliction. He's looked down upon my affliction, the affliction being her husband doesn't love her. He's seen this, and therefore I'm going to name him See a Son. So she kind of ties it in. Play on words to indicate understanding that God has looked down upon her affliction and shown his love. Even though she hasn't received love from Jacob, he's shown his love to her. Now, in spite of the fact that uh, Leah deceived Jacob, she never mentions that anywhere. She doesn't say, oh, I know, you're upset with me because I deceived. Never mentioned, not one time. Doesn't even say. She puts all the blame on Jacob. But I still, I can't help but feel for Leah as I read through this. I really, I really feel for Leah. I guess you have to if you're thinking clearly through this. But you know what the good news is? The Lord loves people even if friends and family are cold and distant and unloving. He still loves you. The Lord saw Leah's affliction, it says. He saw her misery. He saw her oppression, her situation, and he intervenes. And Leah may be unloved by Jacob, but guess who does love her? The Lord does. The Lord loves people. Some of you may here tonight, maybe, may, may, maybe you feel that way tonight. Maybe you feel like you're unloved. You feel oppressed. You feel like you're in a state of misery. You say, no one understands me, no one loves me, and that even may be true. But I'll tell you one thing, the Lord loves you. He loves you if no one else does. So will the birth of Jacob's firstborn child cause him to love Leah? Now maybe he'll come around. She thinks it will. She says, surely now, it's a very confident statement, surely now my husband will love me. What if he doesn't? Brings to the second son, verse 33, says, Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. So we'll get another blue blanket out because we have another son. She names him Simeon, which is a play on the word heard. The Lord heard she was unloved. The Lord saw she was unloved. The Lord heard she was unloved. Gives her a second son. Now, obviously, what Leah was confident of in verse 32, surely now my husband will love me, that's still not true. It didn't come true. Uh, she still feels unloved. You know what? Leah is making the same mistake that... People throughout history have made, people to these days still make, 
They think, a lot of people think, if we just have a child, a marriage that's in trouble, a marriage that's hurting, they think a lot of times, if we just have a child, maybe that'll fix our marriage. Maybe that'll bring us together. Is that, is that the answer to this problem? The truth is love. It's true love. It's the love that is shed abroad in our, in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's love, Christ's love, and our commitment to Christ, that's what holds the marriage together. Not all this circumstantial stuff. Maybe if we have a child, maybe if we do this, maybe if we get a new house, maybe if we get a swimming pool, maybe if we get a new car, maybe if this happens or you get a better job or any of these things, none of that's true. It's all about what, what, are we related to Christ properly and therefore love each other as a result. But Leah does understand some great theological truths here so far. She knows the Lord sees people in their affliction. She knows the Lord hears people in, this, in, her, in their affliction. And she know, knows the Lord that cares about her. But that brings us to the third child in verse 34. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. I've borne him three sons. Therefore, she, he was named Levi. Now, this time, my husband will become attached to me. Leah now has three sons. Now, that's something anybody, any man in the ancient Near East would be proud of. I've got three sons. This is great. Uh, this, is the, 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 this time, the third time, she says, the charm. Surely now, Jacob is going to grow in attachment to Leah. The name Levi, Levi, by the way, is a play on the word attached or join. So what do we see here? It's, it's plain to see Jacob has still not grown in his love for Leah. Three children later, this is, she's optimistic that it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Nevertheless, did you notice this? Jacob is willing to have children with Leah, although he doesn't love her. That brings us to the fourth son in verse 35. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Judah has to do with the word praise. So Leah names him that, and she said, This time I will praise the Lord. Now, in the naming of the first three sons, her obsession, you can see her obsession. She's obsessed with something. That is, she's obsessed with her husband's love or lack of it. That's what it's been all about for her. Think back. Go to back to verse 32. Now my husband will love me. Verse 33. I am unloved. Verse 34. My husband will become attached to me. Three sons later, she's still asking the question, where's the love at? What's happened here? But now, with the birth of a fourth son, Leah seems to have a moment of deep spiritual insight. This is probably the highest spiritual moment in the whole passage. She doesn't mention her husband's lack of love for her this time. She doesn't say, she doesn't talk about her affliction. She doesn't say, woe is me. She only has one thought to convey, and that's this. This time... I'm going to praise the Lord. Her whole attention is focused on the Lord himself, on his praise. Even if her husband doesn't love her, he's going, she's going to praise the Lord. It's not an easy thing to do when you're desperate. When you're in a desperate circumstance like she was, that's not an easy thing to do. It's always an appropriate thing to do. It's easy for me to tell you to praise the Lord if I'm not in the circumstance, and you are, by the way. Christians do that all the time. Oh, well, you need to praise the Lord. Okay, I get it, but you need to have a little compassion for the people, too. Uh, Philippians 4, 4 says this. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. always. Oh, my goodness, what a word. Why did he say always? <laughs> Isn't that a little tough? As if, 
And as if he feels the need to emphasize that, he says, and furthermore, again, I'm going to tell you this again. I'm going to double up on this statement. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the place we need to get to in our particular affliction. Whatever affliction you may be going through tonight, this is easy for me to say, right, if I'm not going through an affliction. Whatever affliction you're going through tonight, if you are, or maybe you will in the near future, this is what you need to realize, that what's important is that we praise the Lord, that we give Him the glory, that we direct our love to Him, that we're focused on Him, not our, you know, our circumstances overcome everything in our mind, take over completely, but the focus should be on the Lord, and that's what she does here. She's a woman desperate for love. Secondly, she's a, uh, there's a woman desperate for children in verses, uh, chapter 30, verses 1 to 8, a woman desperate for children. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You know, while Leah is in the process of bearing four children, Rachel's in the process of bearing no children. None at all. It wasn't for lack of trying. Verse 1, Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. So she's following the footsteps of Sarah and Rebecca and her barrenness. Same thing they went through. And she's none too happy. Proverbs 30, verse 15 says, There are four things that will not be satisfied. One of those is the barren womb. The barren womb will not be satisfied with being barren. And you can see that expressed in Rachel's emotions and her words. You can almost feel this uh, come, off, uh, uh, you know, uh, come off the page. Verse 1, she became jealous of her sister. Now think about this for a minute. Who was it that opened Leah's womb to bear children? It was the Lord. So if Rachel thought about this just for a little while, she would realize that she is jealous because the Lord blessed Leah. That's, that's where her jealousy is coming from. She's jealous, she's angry at Leah, but the fact of the matter is Leah is being blessed by God at this point. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been jealous of someone who is being blessed by God? That's not a good place to be. You don't want to be in that place. You want to get away from that place because God is blessing someone, a believer. You don't want to be jealous of that person. That's the wrong place to be. Remind me of Matthew 20. There's a landowner. There's a parable in Matthew 20. There's a landowner, one of my favorite parables. There's a landowner there, and he hires several people to go to work for him. Hires a guy, you know, hires some people at the, first, at the beginning of the day. And then he hires people throughout the day and then the last hour of the day. So some people work one hour, others work a full day. And then he has the gall, this landowner. I used to be in a union in Chicago, the Teamsters Union, for a few years when I was lived up there. And uh, they don't mess around with people, okay? You don't pay, you might die. <laughs> so I, think, I tend to think a little bit about those guys. And I think about that when I read this section in Matthew 20. Uh, this guy, this landowner... I wasn't very happy the first time I read this parable. When I was uh, one of the first times I read this, by the way. What is this guy doing? Not paying. This landowner gets these guys out there and pays the one guy who worked one hour the same pay as everybody that worked all day in the hot sun. And I thought that's not fair. In fact, I we were in Stephen. We were in Greek class, Mr. Carver. We translated this section, and I said, "That's not fair. I wouldn't work for that guy." That's what I said. I was so angry. And a guy in the class, I can't remember who it was, he says, I do work for that guy. <laughs> he says, so he pays him the same as everybody else. 
the guys that were the people that this is so the, the people that were paid, you know, worked all day and got the same pay. They they formed a union. <laughs> they they went to their complained to their boss and they that wasn't a good idea because the landowner in this section represents God, I found out. And uh, do you know what his reply was to the grumbling workers? Do you know what he said? He said, Is your eye envious because I am generous? Is your eye envious because I, because I bless this person? Are you jealous of that? And I know there's more to that parable than that, but if the Lord shows generosity to another believer, why should I be jealous? Why should I be jealous that the Lord is blessing you? Maybe he chooses to bless you, uh, uh, Bill. Maybe he chooses to bless Bill Hogan. Am I going to be jealous of that? Why should I be? I should rejoice with those who rejoice. Jealousy always leads to words and actions that are anything but edifying, usually very hurtful. Rachel's jealousy gives way to an absurd statement. Do you see it in verse 1? This is what happens when you're jealous. You say the most absurd things. Give me children or else I die. Not quite as noble as Patrick Henry's, give me liberty or I die. Uh, give me death. She says, give me children or else I die. That sounds a lot like desperation. First of all, Jacob had children with Leah, so he wasn't the issue. He's not the issue. Secondly, uh, was Rachel really going to die if she didn't have children? No, obviously not. And, and notice at this point, she's not only content to have one child, she demands a plurality of children. I want to have children. Why? Because Leah just had a bunch of children. And Rachel's words indicate she's not going to be content with one child. She wants children. She must have them. That leads me to ask this question. Think about this. At what point should Rachel be, should, should Rachel be content? with her situation. At what point? Should she be content with no children? This is tricky. Don't answer out loud. You're going to get yourself in trouble here. You know these guys, they ask, Mike, you ask these questions to trick everybody. I know you do. No, he doesn't do that. Sometimes he does. Is she going to be content with one child? Will she be content with two children? How about seven children? Like Ruth talks about, you know, oh, yeah, this is this, it's better to have uh, this one child and seven sons. Or better have, uh, uh, what's her name? <laughs> Ruth and have seven sons, right? Seven's kind of a big deal in the Bible to have seven sons. Now, I hate to be harsh on Rachel. I know she's hurting. I know, likely, she's hurting. I get it, only for a different reason. But it does make me wonder, this, it makes me wonder, what, at what point, what does it take to make us content? What does it take? Do we find our contentment in the Lord? Or are we looking elsewhere for that? We're, again, I, I, I sympathize with both these ladies, but where do we find our contentment? You have to think about that. This discussion is not going to end with very well. Uh, you see in verse 2, Rachel's jealousy will be matched by Jacob's anger. Verse 2, then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. You know, husbands and wives get into situations like this. They do. One, one is jealous while the other is angry. One is making absurd statements while the other brings out the Bible and starts preaching. Uh, Jacob says, am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Well, one thing's for sure is theology is sound. Jacob understands that the Lord is in charge of this. The, uh, he gives, he's the one who grants children. But his spirit and timing are not necessarily the greatest. You know, we really do have to be kind and thoughtful and uh, understanding of our wives husbands. We really need to be that way. Colossians 3.19, husbands do not become embittered against your wives. 
Because this is a tendency for men to become embittered against your wives. We men really can show a lack of civility towards our wives. We have to be very careful about that. Now, according to 1 Peter 3, husbands are supposed to live with their wives in what? In an understanding way, it says. But in verse 2, Jacob is short on understanding and quick on losing his temper. He understands theology. He's just not very understanding toward his wife. How about that? A lot of times we'll, oh, yeah, we're really great theologians here, but we just don't live like we should. That's the problem. We don't relate to each other like we should. This is not the way husbands are to treat their wives. This is not the way wives and husbands are to talk to each other, uh, especially when going through difficulties. This is not helpful, none of this. For the moment, Jacob is neither loving uh, either wife, Rachel or Leah. Rachel's desperation for a child leads her to take a cue, though, from her role model, Sarah. Look at verse 3. She said, well, here's my maid, Bilhah, Bilhah, going to her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. So now Jacob has a third wife. He started, he started with one in mind. We'll give him credit for starting with one in mind. Now he's got three, and just like his grandfather Abraham, remember him? He doesn't put up an argument about this situation, like with Hagar's situation. He just, okay, whatever you say. There's a custom in the ancient Near East back then. If a woman was barren, she can employ her servant as a surrogate to bear children, and then it would belong to the, 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 the barren woman. She'd be in charge. It would be her child, and that's what Rachel does. It's going to be Rachel's child. This is not a biblical custom, by the way. This is an ancient Near Eastern custom. Sometimes we practice customs of the world, but that's not what we're supposed to do. We don't practice something because the world accepts it. We practice something because the Bible says it's, it's true. But Rachel's desperate here. Verse 3. That she may bear on my knees, she says. That's a way of saying that Bill's children would be welcome uh, as one of her own. They're going to belong to Rachel. Verse 4. Uh, so she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Jacob said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. So Dan means he is vindicator. He is judged. Rachel makes a play on the word Dan there. She says, God has vindicated me. God has judged me. She doesn't mean God's judgment is falling upon her in a dreadful way. She means God is judging her favorably. God is vindicating her cause. God is blessing her is what he means there. She means there. According to verse 6, Rachel says she has been even praying for children. But do you see what's really happening here? Rachel views the births of Leah's children as a contest. She must catch up. She's behind. In her mind, the score is four to nothing. Leah has four children. She has none. And besides that, Leah has four sons, which are a valuable asset in the ancient Near East. Rachel feels like, I've got to even the score. I've got to do my best. I've got to catch up. I've got to make headway in this game. It's like a game they're playing. In her mind, the fact that her maid bore Dan to her shows that the momentum is changing. You know how that in a football game they'll say, well, now the momentum's changing. That's how she feels. Now the momentum's changing. And she gets what she's deserved. She finally gets a son. I've now been vindicated, she says. But is that really the Lord's purpose? To vindicate Leah? To vindicate Rachel, rather? To make her feel good about herself? Is that what his purpose is? She's got it all wrong. It's not about her vindication. It's not our, it's not our cause that should consume us. It's not my vindication that can consume me. It's about some selfish matter. It's the Lord's cause. 
I should be worried about. I should be worried about him being vindicated, him being justified. I'm not here for selfish reasons. I'm not supposed to be here for selfish reasons. Bilhah is not through with childbearing yet. Verse 7, Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Rachel views this, uh, this, this whole issue as a struggle to have children, a wrestling match against her sister. I wrestled against my sister. Are you crazy? That, that term, mighty wrestlings, is literally wrestlings of God, or contest of God. But given the context, I don't think Rachel is wrestling with God here, like Jacob will later. The net, as the Net Bible states, the divine name is used here to emphasize the intensity of the struggle. This is an intense struggle. Rachel is fighting like crazy. She's struggling like crazy to keep up with her sister in this race for babies. She says, I have wrestled with my sister. Is that how we're supposed to live? Competition between sisters. It's like a grudge match. So she names them Naphtali, which has to do with the word wrestlings. She's desperate for children. Thirdly, we see a woman desperate for victory. Woman desperate for victory. Look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, how happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Leah obviously is not content with her four sons. Not enough yet. Four sons is great. Not enough, though. Not going to tap out yet in this wrestling match. I'm going to maybe tag team with my handmaid, Zilpa, and I'm going to. I don't want to lose any ground. I've already lost ground here with the other two children that Rachel had through Bilhah. I've lost some ground, so I've got to keep up with this, this uh, competition here. So I'm going to give my handmaid to you, Jacob, as a wife, it says. You notice that in verse 9, as a wife, just like verse 4 calls Bilhah Jacob's wife. So Jacob no longer has two or three wives, one or two or three. He's got four wives, two of them secondary wives, by the way. And uh, not once has he said, have you noticed that? Not once has he said, well, maybe this isn't God's plan for marriage. It never says that. It never, he never comes out and says anything like that at all. Never does. Neither is, does Rachel or Leah, by the way. They're so intent on bringing babies into the world, forget about monogamy. We just got to get more babies. There's a, there's a contest going on here. Zilpah bears a son and calls him Gad. That means good luck or fortune. What fortune I have. And then Zilpah bears another baby called Asher, meaning has having to do with the word happy. She says, happy am I. So she can add two more to her quiver. And she tells you how she feels about it. I'm very happy about this. I'm, uh, this is a great thing. And, and so I'll name my second son, uh, this other son, Asher. And look what she says. Women will call me happy. I'm going to call him happy, and women are going to call me happy. And those words made me think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. In Luke 1:48, Mary says, The Lord has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. They're going to count me blessed. Now, that was spoken by a very godly woman, a very humble woman, Mary, obviously. She wasn't looking for anybody's approval, not at all. She was just amazed because the Lord would even consider her to bear the Messiah. But for Leah, it's a different ballgame. She's looking for the approval of others. Women are going to call me happy now. 
It's very important to her that she get the approval of other people. In fact, it's important to Rachel as well. Uh, so she says, in effect, people are going to think highly of me now. Look at all the children I've had. They're going to think I'm somebody. It makes me ask another, myself another question. Where do I find happiness? Is it in the approval of other people? Is that what's motivating me, even in the work of God? I want to be, you know, I hope people approve of preaching, of my preaching. I hope people, or maybe in your situation, I hope people approve of how I serve the Lord or what I, or my job. I hope people are going to approve of me here. Is that what motivates us? Or are we driven by a desire to please the Lord, regardless of approval or not? We should think more like Mary and less like Leah here. Mary found her joy and her happiness in relationship to the Lord. Now, Leah didn't neglect the Lord. She speaks of the Lord. But unlike Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's conflicted. She's divided in her mind. She's distracted in her mind about all this. But the rustling match continues. Look at verses 14 and 16. This is bizarre. Now, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel, you can see they, there's no love between these women here. Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. And Jacob came in from the field in the evening. Then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I've surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. So Reuben, the oldest son of Leah, goes out, I don't know how old he is at the time, old enough to go out into the field and collect some mandrakes. I think the only other time that word mandrakes is used in the Bible is in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 13, where it talks about the fragrance of the mandrakes. So it must have been some kind of a pleasing aroma. The Greeks refer to this, uh, the, the mandrakes, as the love apple. They call it the love apple because it had a reputation as an aphrodisiac. A love potion. It's kind of like a fertility drug. They thought it was, at least that's how they looked at it. Rachel thinks, this is a possible solution to my barrenness. I'll use this fertility drug, the mandrakes. So she requests Leah that Leah give her these. Leah's not in a very giving mood here at the time. She's upset because she says, you've stolen my husband's affections. There's always this bickering going on. You're guilty of stealing my husband's affections. Now, it's true that Rachel has control of this marriage, not Leah. That's pretty obvious. So Rachel, apparently desperate for the mandrakes, strikes a deal. She gives permission for Leah to have Jacob for the night in exchange for the mandrakes. Now, here's what's sad about this. This is really a sad statement. Leah goes to Jacob and says, I've hired you for the night. That's sad. First, Laban has hired Jacob. Now, Laban's daughter hires Jacob. Laban's family is all about deal making. What a marriage this is, right? This is not a marriage made in heaven, by the way. So we have a husband for hire here, a uh, rent-a-husband. The word hire has to do with the wages a person receives uh, for a service or work. This is literally a business transaction. That's what this is. This bigamous marriage raises its ugly uh, head again, showing that there's a controlling wife, and there's the, the other wife is at the mercy of the first. You can see how this has become endless, endlessly complicated, this whole marriage situation. Disunity everywhere. Verse 17, God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. 
fertile Leah once again has a son, the fifth son to be precise. The reason stated here is that God is responsible. God gave heed to Leah. She names the baby Issachar, which is related to the word wages. Leah, now there's, Leah's got some twisted reasoning here in this verse. She says, well, God's rewarded me because, with the fifth son because I gave my maid to Jacob. That's hardly true, as if that, is that, that's actually brought on God's blessing. That's what she thinks. So you can see in this family there's both an understanding of God and there's a misunderstanding of God. Kind of all over the map. You ever seen people in a church like that? Both are true. Understanding of God and misunderstanding of God at the same time. Happens all the time. It shows the importance of having the right view of biblical doctrine. The right view of God. The right view of the, correct, of the person of God. Very important that we get that right. Verse 19. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Now, I don't know if they struck another deal or not, but she has a sixth son. I'll call him Zebulun, meaning honor. I know it says dwelling there. Probably it's something like my husband's going to honor me by dwelling with me. Uh, so we've come full circle here. We're back to Leah longing for the companionship of Jacob. She had that high moment of, of saying, I'm going to praise the Lord now. I don't, my husband doesn't love me, but I'll praise the Lord. Now we're back to this. that ever happened to you? One day you're praising the Lord. I'm on fire for God. I'm on the mountaintop. I'm living for the Lord. And a week later, you're where? Down in the dumps. That happens, right? We should, there should be consistency about us. But here, you can see what's happening here. Apparently, Jacob is living with Rachel. And occasionally, gets with Leah. It's, it's an ongoing struggle for Leah. Verse 21 Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Now, all it says is she has, she, of all these, she has all these sons, right? Now she has one girl, this daughter, named him Dinah. No other comments made. <laughs> Nothing at all. Probably because Dinah is not going to be one of the heads of the tribes of Israel. Uh, and, uh, but her name has to do with judgment, just like Dan, Dan and Dinah, similar. Uh, and this is also our introduction to Dinah. You know, the Bible does this, right? It introduces a character, and then later on down the road, you see her again. You see him again. We're going to cross her paths again. Leah Nidal is not only desperate for Jacob's love, she's desperate to have more babies than Rachel. She wants the victory in this. She's going to do whatever it takes. And so is Rachel, even if it means giving up their handmaidens to their husband. That brings us finally to number four, a woman no longer desperate. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Finally, Rachel has a child. Now, I feel like saying, you ever read through this, and you, get, and you want to stand up and say, Congratulations, you finally have a boy. It's a baby boy, right? You're, we're so happy you finally have a child. You've been complaining all this time, and we're tired of hearing it. Hopefully, Rachel learns something about God in the process here. You know, in three, in three verses here, there's four statements about God. You notice that? Verse 22. First of all, it says, God remembered Rachel. That doesn't mean he forgot her at all. He obviously doesn't forget anybody. This is a remembering with kindness, a way of saying that God blessed her. Secondly, God gave heed to her and opened her womb. The same God that had closed her womb now opens her womb. He has control over these things. It's not because of mandrakes. That's not why she had a baby. It's because God acted on her behalf. 
and that God gave heed to her tells me she's been doing some serious praying at this point. Verse 23, the third statement about God, Rachel says, God has taken away my reproach. Now, I understand, again, I've said this throughout this message, I understand Rachel's feelings. Uh, she's a woman under reproach. It's a disgrace back then to have, to not have to, for a woman to be childless. Uh, society frowned upon it. It was considered shameful even. I understand her feelings. She'll no longer have to deal with that issue. She names him Joseph, which means to add. And then she gives a fourth statement about God in verse 24. May the Lord give, or literally, may the Lord add to me another son, taking, playing off the word Joseph. May the Lord add to me another son. For the first time, she uses the word Lord here, Yahweh, in all her sayings about God after her prayer has been answered. And the Lord will add another son to her in chapter 35 by the name of Benjamin. You can see that in chapter 35. So on the one hand, the Lord takes away her reproach. On the other hand, he adds, he's going to add another child. So the Lord's subtracting and adding, which is both a blessing to Rachel. And thus ends the biblical soap opera at this point. With all this wackiness going on, don't forget the big picture. Don't forget. You, you, you can get lost in all this. Well, oh, this person's mad. She's upset. This person's jealous. They're having babies left and right. And forget the whole picture that's going on. The big picture is this. What the Lord promised Jacob in Genesis 28, 14. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. The Lord is building his nation of Israel. In the midst of all this craziness, he's fulfilling his word of providing the descendants. Don't miss that. A lot of craziness in this section. But isn't this like real life? Isn't this what really happens in real life in so many different ways? So many crazy things we get involved in. Here's what's sad. This kind of thing can even happen in a normal family. One father, one mother. There can still be competition among the family members. Anger, jealousy, bitterness, friction, disunity. It can even happen in a church. While Jesus is building his church, Satan is trying to just tear it down at the same time. And so if he can get us fighting, think about this, if he can get us feuding, if he can get us divisive and competing, spirit of competition for different reasons, if he can get us to follow our own agenda, he scored a victory, major victory. That's sad, and unfortunately it happens far more than we want to admit. But there's also good news. Even with all our sinfulness and selfishness, the Lord will always seek to accomplish his purpose, and he will. He will accomplish his purpose. That's not an excuse for us to act like the baby boomers in Genesis 29 and 30. It's just a fact. The Lord will accomplish his good pleasure. He's not depending on us. Here's the good news. The Lord's not depending on us to get his work done. He's depending on himself as he works through us. And we mess it up so often, but the Lord gets it done. He will get it done. He will build his church. What the Lord wants out of us is our full cooperation. With his, to his word, to his will. That means we put away all selfish desires. We submit to his authority. We submit to the spirit. Stephen talked about being filled with the spirit this morning. We seek to be filled with the spirit so we can live in a way that pleases God. We need to quit focusing on ourselves. We need to keep our eyes on the big picture. And that is the Lord's purpose. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful again for your word. Grateful for what we learned from it. Uh, Lord, we see throughout the scriptures that we are sinful people, and we see you are a good and faithful God. We're thankful for that tonight. We pray that we'll, we will cooperate with you in what you want to accomplish. 
We will submit to your spirit. We will walk with you as we should. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.